You are listening to the In Perspective Weekly Podcast with Bob Branco and Peter Outchul. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again to In Perspective. I am Bob Branco for episode 298, dated Friday, March 3rd, 2023. Before we continue, let me introduce my good friend and colleague, Peter Alchel. How are you doing today? Hey, Bob. Welcome to tranquil, quiet Columbia, Missouri, which I gather is not the case where you guys are in Boston. Well, not yet. It was tranquil and quiet there today, but tonight we're supposed to get some snow and rain. Yeah. All right. Well, enjoy the weather. We've been getting similar stuff here. So um, so anyway. All right. So without further ado, let me make some acknowledgments and offer some thanks and say some hellos to certain people. Raymond Gay, our producer, thank you very much for editing In Perspective. We appreciate that very much. I want to thank Tom and Lynn from Rosie's Place. They post our shows on greeting door number 15, so thank you for doing that. I also want to thank the media outlets for airing our show when they do. Thank you for that. And finally, to Jacqueline Sylvia of JS Web Solutions, who archives In Perspective podcasts through my website. Just go to www.brancoevents.com, arrow down until you get to In Perspective podcasts, click on those, and you will see our archives for the most part, most of them, from latest to earliest. Merci, Jackie. And I'm sure she likes hearing that over and over again. I have a couple of listeners that I want to give a shout out to today. Listeners that have supported us. Vinny Samarco and Rick Troiano. Hello to both of you. Thank you. Today we're going to be here with the American Cancer Society. That's a very important worldwide, worthwhile organization. And we have some representatives from that organization on our show. One of them I know is here already, Dr. Arnold Baskies. I'm not sure where the other two guests are at the moment, but I'm sure that when they arrive, we'll know when they do. But in the meantime, let me introduce Dr. Arnold Baskies to our program. Don, Arnold, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Bob, it's, uh, it's great to be with you and uh, always uh, a pleasure to talk about the American Cancer Society. Okay, well, tell us about your background and also your role with the American Cancer Society. So my background uh, is fairly straightforward. Uh, uh, like you, I'm a native uh, Massachusetts person, uh, and I went to college at Boston University. I did my medical school training at Boston Medical Center, and um, I did a surgical oncology fellowship uh at the National Cancer Institute, uh, which gave me the ability and knowledge necessary to treat various types of cancer. Uh, and uh, I've been involved with the Cancer Society since about 1978 or 1979, when uh, I left the National Cancer Institute and went back to Boston. And the uh, American Cancer Society provided me with research funds so I could continue my work. My areas of interest are immunotherapy, which is a hot area right now. And um, I'm very proud to say that uh, the Cancer Society has supported not only me, but uh, a lot of other investigators who've made a big difference in people's lives. And that's one of the reasons why, or the main reason why I, I have been a volunteer with the Cancer Society 
since the 1970s. Um, I've had many roles with the society. Uh, I'm proud to say I chaired the um, uh, Eastern Division of the Cancer Society. And then um, in, in 2017, uh, after being on the National Board of Directors, I became chairman of the National Board of Directors of the American Cancer Society. And uh, that was uh, um, the, one of the, the real proud things that, I, uh, that I'm happy to say uh, I've done in my lifetime. So um, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. That sounds more than fair, doctor, and welcome from from me as well, Peter. Um, My question to you is, what prompted you to get interested in cancer in the first place? Wow. Uh, Now you're getting into some very personal stories, so I'll tell you my story. Um, um, I was a huge sports fan growing up. Um, I came from the era of Bill Russell and John Havlicek and basketball was doing the club something I was really interested in and when I got into med school I thought I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon um, something happened while I was in medical school when I was a third year medical student my grandmother who was almost like a second mother to me um, uh, a truly incredible woman who ran a business uh, actually the business is still in existence at Savinor's in Cambridge um my grandmother was very, I was, I grew up in the same house with my grandmother and uh, she was the major domo of our family, to be honest with you. And she didn't go to work one day. And I was a third year medical student. I was very concerned because this woman had gone to work every day of her life. And uh, I called my mom and she told me that uh, she wasn't feeling well. And that was also very concerning. So I went to the house and as a third year medical student, I examined my grandmother and I felt a very large mass in her abdominal cavity when I examined her. And I got her admitted to the hospital. Uh, and it turned out that she had a colon cancer. And um, that that episode in my life really changed my trajectory. I decided I didn't want to be an orthopedic surgeon any longer. I really wanted to be a cancer surgeon. And uh, there was a guy at uh, Boston Medical Center by the name of Peter Deckers, who went on to become the dean of the University of Connecticut Medical School. And he was uh, the guiding light for me. I, I uh, uh, So those two things together, uh, the person that I, I admired the most in my medical training was Dr. Deckers, who was a cancer surgeon who had trained at the National Cancer Institute. That together with my grandmother, having developed the colon cancer, um, uh, really changed my whole, uh, my whole career path. And so that's, that's my story. Thank you for sharing. (laughs) Thanks for sharing that. And your, you know, your story reminds me about all of us think we're going to go in a certain direction. Something happens that's totally unforeseen and we end up somewhere very different. That's right. Uh, and, and, uh, how did your grandmother, if you don't mind my asking doctor, how did your grandmother make out with her? Colon she did cancer. very well. They were able to remove the tumor, and um, eventually, however, uh, four years later, it came back, and um, she eventually succumbed to her cancer. But uh, she was very grateful to the care that she received at Boston uh, University Medical Center, which is now called Boston Medical Center. And um, uh, she, she became very close with my mentor, as a matter of fact. Um, he was quite a guy, and uh, he operated on her. And... Uh, uh, had it not been for the fine care that she received, we wouldn't have had those extra years of, of life with her. 
So, so doctor, in thinking about this um, conversation we were going to have, it occurred to me, uh, you know, you, you do a lot of work in cancer and in the American Cancer Society. What is cancer? Well, in very general terms, cancer is a is a disease that results from unlimited growth of cells, uh, and various organs in the body can form can transform themselves from being normal to abnormal cells, and lose the capacity to have controlled growth. So that really is what cancer is in a, in a very simple way. Uh, and the way we go about uh, the way we understand cancer is is really exactly that it's uncontrolled growth um, that has the ability to not only grow where it shouldn't but also to grow where it 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 started so it can not only be a problem from local growth but also can spread and so that really is in very simple terms what cancer is uh, it's a disease that will affect about 1.9 uh, million people in the United States uh, in uh, in this year, in 2023. About a million men will develop uh, a cancer, uh, and about 950,000 women will develop a cancer. One in two men in their lifetime will develop cancer, and about one in three women in their lifetime will develop cancer. So... Uh, all the more reason that we should uh, uh, apply the resources that are available and make sure that we can provide care to everybody. And in in sort of general, thanks for that definition. That's really helpful. Uh, in general terms, what does the American Cancer Society do, you know, to, uh, to address cancer? I'm sorry, what was that again? What, what does the American Cancer Society do? I mean, you know, it's an organization that's sure. been around for a while. What, is, what does it do? What, what, what are its various services that it, that it offers? I know you're it's not. A great, it's a great yeah. question. First of all, what a lot of people don't realize is that this is a volunteer organization that receives no money from the federal government. Um, we are the number two supporter financially of cancer and the only one, the only organization that provides more money for the uh, for the uh, for research is the federal government. So we're the number two provider of cancer of dollars for um, for cancer research in the United States. Um, we have really three areas that we that we focus on in this volunteer organization: discovery, advocacy, and patient support. Discovery three, is three very important phases. Three very important phases. Yes. Absolutely. So from the discovery point of view, we can talk about the research that we support, which we're very proud of. What a lot of people don't realize is that um, the people that win Nobel Prizes didn't suddenly become a Nobel Prize winner. It took decades for most of these people, men and women, to to uh, to to get to the point in their scientific careers where they could win the Nobel Prize. And so but. At the very beginning, their ideas and their, uh, that began with the beginning of their matriculation had to be supported. And what we do at the Cancer Society is we have an external uh, review panel that looks at people that are applying for research grants. And very, we're very proud of the fact that we have, we have identified researchers at the earliest phase of their careers to the point where 49 of the Nobel Prize winners got their initial 
cancer research funds from the American Cancer Society. So we're very good at picking winners, if you will. Um, we right now have about $3 billion on street in the United States uh, that um, uh, totally that we've provided since 1991, um, contributing to about, that's resulted in about 4 million fewer cancer deaths that would have occurred had we not invested that $3 billion since 1991. Um, right now, as we speak uh, on this podcast, Bob, we have about $419 million in innovative research that we're currently funding um, that could start a lab, could be uh, going to investigators who are a little bit further along. But at the end of the day, um, we've made a big difference in terms of, of the ability to identify the best and the brightest in terms of cancer research. Um, now, is part of your research, and does that involve new drugs, new treatments, etc.? Yes. At the end of the day, what we what we're looking for is is new ideas. Um, the ideas that will, in the next few years or or a decade longer, um, could make a difference in people's lives. So yes. We, we are looking for um, people that are doing the, the best research in terms of not only developing drugs, but techniques to treat people. Um, and I think it's not, an, it's not an exaggeration to say that every single person in the United States today who has cancer or had cancer had some involvement with the Cancer Society because we've either funded the research that made it possible for them to get the drugs or the medications that they're receiving, or we've invested in people's uh, in people's education so that they could learn to treat people better, whether it's nurses or physicians. So um, it, it really isn't a stretch to say that we we affect the lives of every single person in the United States today, either from supporting research or from the other things that we do, like advocacy. What a, one of the one of the one of the things I'm really proud of is the fact that we we uh, are supporting diversity in cancer research. For instance, um, um, we we have projects to eliminate health disparities, and we have two million volunteers that are part of our society that are lobbying uh, sometimes on a daily basis for cancer for legislation that affects the treatment of people. Um, we have volunteers that are driving people to to their doctor's appointments. Um, so the, the, from what we do from a patient support point of view and from advocacy is unmatched by any other organization in terms of numbers and dedication. Doctor, I, I you may not be able to answer this question. If you can't, I certainly understand. Oh, you know, we're supposed to have other people representing the. Hey, uh, hey listen, I'm originally from Chelsea, Massachusetts. I can answer any question. I, I, I have, I have faith in you, sir. I Chelsea by the you. sea. Yeah. So. Chelsea by the sea, correct. I was interested that you said that the, uh, American Cancer Society gets no uh, funding from the government. Where do you get your funding? My funding for my research? No, no. Uh, where, where does the ACS get, get its funding? Forgive me. From people who make contributions like you guys. Um, ah, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is, is, so, so is it, is it individual funding or do you get grants from, other foundations or uh, how does that work? There are, there are, yes, there are foundations that, that provide us with, with funding. Um, and the, oftentimes private foundations. We do get 
uh, funding from some pharma, uh, but the, the majority of our funding comes from volunteers and fund from uh, uh, ad, from people in the society who are raising money. Our average donation is about $34, by the way. So you can see that we're a real grassroots organization. Thank you for that. So I was thinking, uh, uh, give me a second, Bob. Uh, so I'm sort of interested. I, my first uh, awareness of the American Cancer Society were this is a long time ago, back in the in the 70s, when when they ran commercials discouraging smoking, which we all know is a right. major contributor to lung cancer. Do you, how much of your work involves that kind of work? Do you act? Do you run promotional material? Uh, promotional. Oh, oh my goodness! The 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 smoking rates in the United States are down to about 16 percent. And most of that is due to the, the work that we've done in, in terms of, um, uh, tobacco legislation. Combustible, by the way, if you want to know a statistic that's interesting, listen to this one. If, if on a worldwide basis, okay, by the end of this century, okay, so we're at uh, 2023, by the end of this century, in the next, uh, 70, seven years. If we don't control worldwide combustible tobacco use, there'll be a billion people on this planet who'll die. That's that a real number. One that, billion people around, in, in, around the world. Around the world. Now, what has ACS done? Well, you, you, I don't, you're probably too young to remember the Great American Smokeout. That was our idea. I um, remember it. 1977. There you go. Um, and ever since that time, one of the, the biggest things that we've done in terms of advocacy um, on a state and national level has been to uh, get people to understand that smoking does cause lung cancer, as well as other pulmonary diseases and other, other types of cancers. Um, uh, and so from, a, from just for an acknowledged point of view, um, uh, we, we've been able to get that translated so that, uh, into the public domain. Um, in terms of legislation, uh, there is the, all the states that have, um, uh, tobacco legislation in terms of smoking, uh, age restrictions. All of that work is due to the volunteers and professionals that we have working with us, our staff people who have kind of worked on our legislators to get them to understand that we really want to limit the amount of tobacco, combustible tobacco, especially among teens. So um, um, it, from a tobacco point of view, there's no organization that's been more committed or has used more resources and dollars than the American Kids Society to, to limit the amount of smoking that's going on. Um, it, it, it's a huge public health problem. And something that we recognized way back uh, when, uh, uh, and and way back to the Nixon administration when he declared the war on cancer it was one of our volunteers who got him to do that. So um, we're very proud of that history. I just want to see if any of our other guests have arrived on the podcast yet. Donna, Christina, are you on yet? Hi there. This is Christina. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dr. Christina Dealey Conright. Did I pronounce it correctly? You were very, very close. Dealey Conright. Dealey. Okay. Dr. Christina Dealey Conright. Uh, Dr. Bass, and, um, I'm on, Bob. This is Donna. Donna. 
okay, well, I'm going to turn the festivities temporarily over to either one of the two ladies because they've just arrived and they are also affiliated with the American Cancer Society. Dr. Baskis, we will definitely get back to you. Okay. So why don't we start with Donna Gulata? Am I pronouncing that correctly? You are, Bob, and I am going to pass the torch to Dr. D.L.A. Conright because I am driving. Uh, so I will pass the torch, but I appreciate your audience and your interest in the American Cancer Society. Dr. D.L.A. Conright, the floor is yours. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for, for having me here this evening. I, I'm proud to, to be affiliated with the American Cancer Society. Uh, I'll start by introducing myself. Uh, as, as mentioned, my name is Christina D.L.A. Conright. I'm an associate professor at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Harvard Medical School. And I am actually a clinical exercise physiologist by training. Uh, I run a research laboratory at the Dana-Farber that focuses on designing and implementing exercise interventions to help mitigate various treatment-related side effects in order to improve treatment tolerance and other comorbid conditions in individuals diagnosed with cancer. Uh, Where I stand with the American Cancer Society is that I have been fortunate enough to receive grant funding from the ACS. Uh, In fact, my very first large grant as an independent investigator was from ACS. And so it was really pivotal in my career. And at the time I was, I'm not a Boston native, like many of you on the call. I'm actually from Southern California, which is getting quite a bit of snow, surprisingly, at the moment. Um, or around this time. Uh, and prior to me joining the Dana-Farber, I was at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Uh, and it was there where I ran a clinical exercise trial to mitigate metabolic syndrome, which is actually an endocrine disorder that puts individuals at a very high risk for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And we used exercise to offset metabolic syndrome in cancer survivors. And importantly, um, some of our preliminary data from that particular trial, especially given that at the time I was in Los Angeles, involved Hispanic and Latina breast cancer survivors. So fortunately, I was able to use that study, which was funded by the National Cancer Institute, gather preliminary data and turn it into the largest exercise trial to date that has been funded specifically for Latina and Hispanic breast cancer survivors. And now that I'm here on the East Coast, we're executing that study currently in the greater Boston area, not solely with patients from Dana-Farber, but actually we recruit throughout the area. Um, and so we have been fortunate enough to build a lot of community collaborators, build a lot of, of course, scientific investigators that have joined our team and uh, proudly are able to conduct this work only because of the award that I received from the American Cancer Society. Um, so again, I, I owe a lot of gratitude and have a lot of gratitude to the American Cancer Society for supporting this initial grant that I received. It, uh, you know, really helped to, of course, not only fund some really amazing science, but also to help establish my career. And it led to a career transition from University of Southern California here to to Harvard and to Dana-Farber. And I don't think that opportunity would have been present had I not received a grant such as the one that I did from the ACS. Um, and perhaps I'll just pause there to see if 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 I should pause there, <laughs> if there's any comments or questions to date. <laughs> well, I have a question for you, doctor. Um, can you talk about the, relax- the connection between exercise and cancer? 
Absolutely. Um, it, it is quite a, a, quite a complex relationship, but also quite simple. The bottom line is that, uh, physical activity, engagement in physical activity across the lifespan is incredibly important to reduce the risk of cancer. Uh, this has been very largely studied with epidemiologic studies in breast, colorectal cancer, prostate cancer, et cetera. Um, some of the more rare cancers, there's just not as strong of evidence. Um, but the bottom line is that engaging in physical activity is, is a very, very good thing for cancer risk reduction. On the recurrent side, it also is beneficial as well. The data also lies very strongly in breast, prostate, and colorectal at the moment. However, you know, more and more epidemiologic studies are on the rise that will help support evidence and other diagnoses. Um, you know, what I like to always tell patients is, is something you've all probably heard before, which is, sit less and move more. Um, I, you know, there's, there's really great evidence around certain doses of exercise, which you, many of you have probably heard 150 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic exercise per week, plus two resistance exercise sessions. Those are the, those are the exercise guidelines for both cancer prevention and cancer survivors by the ACS. Um, but the bottom line is, is just staying active throughout a lifetime is really what goes a long way. Um, we run clinical trials in my lab, so we do a lot of fun things around different types of exercise, timing of exercise. Um, we, we might pick resistance exercise over something else, depending on what we're actually trying to manipulate physiologically. Um, but the message is very clear. The data is very strong that physical activity is a game changer when it comes to cancer risk. And the reason I say the term physical activity and not exercise is because those are actually two different things. Physical mm-hmm. activity is a very broad term. It could include transportation activity. Uh, it could include occupational activity. So if you all bucket it all together, it could include exercise, of course. That's referred to as physical activity, which epidemiologic studies do a great job at capturing. Exercise is is different in the sense that it's goal-based um, it's structured. It, it can generally be prescriptive. Um, it's motivated by that particular goal. So not all physical activity is exercise per se. Um, and I always like to make that distinction just because it does help a little bit when sort of teasing sure. some of the evidence that you might read in the media about physical activity and exercise and cancer. So one more question from me about this topic. I, I, um, I know that when people are going through cancer, uh, chemotherapy or whatever, you, you feel, feel pretty lousy, you know, going through that process. And yet I, as my understanding is the more, the more physical activity you can do, the, the better, more likely success the treatment's going to be within limits. Of course, you don't want people to be running marathons in those circumstances, perhaps. So how, how do you uh, counsel patients who don't feel good from these chemo to, to get them to move around a little more? Sure. That's a fantastic question. And it, it it is definitely complicated because ultimately, if someone's not feeling well, it could be the last thing they want to do is to start engaging in exercise. You know, this is where it really helps to have a support system around engaging in exercise to add an extra motivational piece. We know from the evidence in our laboratory that once people on treatment begin exercising, they do feel significantly better. Sleep improves, fatigue reduces, quality of life improves, depression reduces, et cetera. And those are just really the psychosocial components. There's also a lot of physical benefits as well. So it's really just sort of getting over the motivational hump to give it a try. 
um, you know, do it safely, listen to the, listen to your body, but at the, at the same time, a little bit can go a long way. And, and we feel really strongly about that. We have a number of patients who advocate for us, who've been on our studies or who perhaps began exercising during treatment because their doctor told them to, and they can speak directly to how well it made them feel. It's just tricky to get, to get going, just like any of us, actually, yes, like exercise can, be, exercise can be hard to engage in for anyone, let alone being receiving some cytotoxic treatments. Um, but that's where, you know, we try to dig deep with people and think about what is motivating them or what might help motivate them, excuse me, a little bit further to just start giving it a try and really start feeling the benefits by giving it a try. And it doesn't need to be 150 minutes per week. It can be, you know, five to 10 minutes a day. It can be taking a little bit of an extra walk or going to a different part of the house to, you know, get a glass of water or to use a restroom or things like that. It can, it can be quite small to just start seeing some improvements because that would be in comparison to being sedentary or being um, having excess sitting time from not feeling well. Yeah, no, that, that makes, that all makes good sense. Uh, before we uh, talk to the other, our guest, um, hopefully she's doing fine in her car. Um, can you talk about what got you interested in cancer in the first place? Sure. That was, that's a great question. Um, you know, fortunately I was not, uh, fortunately at, at a, at a younger age as I was pursuing research and, a and, a exploring whether I was going to go into a research career, I, I did not have direct family members around me who are diagnosed, um, or, or who perhaps passed away from, from cancer. Rather, my story really started from engaging in fundraising and philanthropy at a young age to fundraise locally within the Los Angeles area for different types of cancer walks, um, you know, things like the Avon walk, the Revlon walk, which is no longer um, Susan G. Komen. These were things that I did with my family um, that they were motivated to do from just hearing about it around town. And so I saw many survivors and people who were in treatment, off treatment at these events and was really just inspired by their ability to to give back to the cancer community by participating in fundraisers. And once I learned, when I was a grad student, once I learned that exercise and physical activity is linked to risk reduction and recurrence risk reduction, I was immediately turned on to the population thinking I can merge my personal passion with exercise to a research career and and, and linked it directly to cancer. Thank you for that. I, I have a, another question that just occurred to me, uh, and anybody is welcome to answer it. And that has to do with the, the connection between heredity and, uh, environment and cancer. What, what does that look like these days? What, what does the research tend to show? So, uh, that's a great question. I, I want to, uh, before I answer that though, um, I wanted to mention, uh, tack on to what Chris was saying. Um, obesity is uh, a huge problem in the United States, not just from the point of view of cardiovascular disease, but there are at least six malignancies uh, that are associated with obesity, uh, including pancreatic cancer, esophageal cancer, um, breast cancer. And in fact, there's a statistic floating around out there that is kind of interesting, a 20-pound weight loss um in postmenopausal women can translate to a 60% decrease in risk for the development of breast cancer. And all of that is tied into um, 
the the issue of exercise and and diet. So a word to the wise, um, you know, we're living through an obesity epidemic. You know, I was in Disney World uh, recently, and I remember going to Disney World seeing a lot of people smoking, and now it's not a lot of people smoking. It's a lot of people eating who are who are really massively obese. Uh, and it, it is a huge problem. It's something that is difficult to talk about, obviously, because we all have relatives or friends who are obese. But nevertheless, from just from a cancer point of view, um, exercise is extremely important and, and putting and keeping track of what you're putting in your mouth is just as important from a cancer prevention point of view. But your, your question about heredity and, and environment is, is, uh, is apropos of what's going on in the world today. Um, there are environmental things that can cause cancer. Benzene uh, 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 and other chemicals uh, we know can cause cancer. So, asbestos. Uh, asbestos is probably the best example of, of a environmental hazard that uh, is associated with a particular type of cancer called mesothelioma in the lung. But um, uh, yes, so uh, our environment is is important. Um, there's also a lot of of stuff out there in the lay in the lay uh, uh, literature as well as on the internet about things that don't cause cancer, like deodorants, for instance. Or um, and, and there's also the issue of talc, which has come up more recently. In terms of um, of powder and causing and as a as a, a risk for the development of ovarian cancer, and but then there is Camp and then there is Camp Lejeune, and then there is Camp Lejeune, right? And you can't go, you can't get past uh, your radio any longer without hearing about an attorney who's trying to figure out uh, a way to to find those people. Uh, but yeah, so the environment can be a, a source of, of cancer. Um, heredity does play a part. We know that um, that uh, many cancers have what's called a genetic signature. Um, and um, uh, way back in 2002, we were able to identify genetic signatures that uh, are um, that are associated with, for instance, various types of breast cancer. And we do know that um, a, a small percentage of women Harbor a, a hereditary predisposition for breast cancer with, by having one of many uh, gen- genetic mutations that we've identified. Not just BRCA one and two, but there are uh, uh, there are m- multiple other other genetic abnormalities that can be inherited that increase risk to say twenty percent. Um, so. Um, uh, with that in mind, your your question is a very good one. Although I want to, I'd like the people listening to re- recognize is that when it comes to breast cancer, the majority of breast cancers are are not, uh, at least that's so far hereditarily based. In other words, just just be, the the majority of women who who develop breast cancer, it's not a hereditary disease. Most of them are 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 um, uh, developed for reasons other than heredity. And what okay. are those reasons? What are those reasons in, in general? Sorry, Bob. What we, uh, cause I always thought it was. That's a great question. So, I thought, um, I thought it, okay, yeah, sorry. Yeah. So are you talking about breast cancer in general? Yes, I am. Yeah. So I wish I knew what caused breast cancer. Uh, uh, obviously there's a, there is a genetic component. Um, 
risk does go up uh, based on on whether an, uh, on a number of factors, um, uh, including heredity. Uh, but um, uh, there are we also know that alcohol plays a role in the development of breast cancer. And risk goes up with with the 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 and, and you can actually show the more alcohol that's imbibed, uh, the higher the risk for the development of breast cancer. Uh, and uh, so heredity plays a role um, as well as as um, some environmental things. Smoking has been uh, associated with an increase in risk in some studies and other studies not. Before we get into our community part of the show, the community participation of the program, I wanted to ask one of you about cure rates for cancer nowadays. If you were to give the whole situation a broad picture, what is cure rate like right now? Well, in general, the, the answer to that question is, is, is relatively straightforward. Um, uh, the the overall, if you take all cancers, all comers, which is kind of a bad statistic because we're now talking about patients with various stages of disease and various malignancies. But if we look at the whole group of patients, the whole two million people uh, that de- develop cancer this year, the overall survival rate will be in the 67 to 70 percent range. Now we can separate out some real advances that have been made. Um, when I graduated medical school in 1975, the overall survival rate for breast cancer was 75%. We thought that was pretty good. Okay. 75%. Now when 2023, the overall survival rate for breast cancer is about 93 to 94%. So, um, lung cancer, um, we've made some really big changes and, 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 uh, advances because of targeted therapies and immunotherapies that are used. I have a cousin just uh, anecdotally who was not, not a smoker. 20% of people get lung cancer are not smokers, by the way, uh, and developed a, a, a very advanced, uh, lung cancer. And was started on one of the newer agents and, and had uh, that, that entire cancer disappeared just from the pills he was taking. Now that isn't, that doesn't happen in every single patient, but we've made some incredible inroads. Melanoma is another one, um, that we've made some tremendous inroads in, in terms of targeted therapies and immunotherapy. So, um, we're doing really well. There's been about a, we have, we have an improvement of about 1.3% per year. And over the last uh, 25 to 30 years, there's been about a 25% improvement in overall survival. So we're doing pretty well. Could we do better? The answer is yes. If we had more more money and more funds, more research dollars, uh, and more investigators like Christina, we, we would be making even more uh, of an advance. And how does one donate? Um, that's great. That's, that's the easiest question you've asked so far. So uh, cancer.org. Just go on there and make your donation. It's, it's really easy to do and we'll, we will all appreciate that very much. You're not making a donation just for yourself. You're making a donation for a loved one who someday might have a problem. So I would like to now open up our program to our participants. This is in perspective and our guests are with the American Cancer Society. We have Dr. Arnold Baskies. 
Dr. Christina Dielli Conright, and we have Donna Gulata, who we've heard from a little bit, but not that much yet. So let me turn our festivities over to Raymond, our producer, to find out if there are any hands raised. Yes, Annie, Annie, you are up first. Hi, everybody. My name's Annie Chapetta. Um, I, I have, uh, I, I really, um, got here for <laughs> personal reasons. <laughs> um, um, quite a few members of my family have been diagnosed with different types of cancer. Um, we have, um, breast cancer in our family. And then just recently, my dog had a pulmonary carcinoma removed, um, earlier this week. Um, so I guess my question is, are, is there a crossover between humans and animals? Um, do, and do any of you have any insight into that? Um, and, um, also, do you see a future where there is no cancer? Thank you. Wow. That's a, a very, very good question. Um, so a lot of what we know about cancers in humans, uh, of studies that have been done in animals, um, uh, so, uh, from the point of view of, of, of uh, cancer, the development of cancers, a lot of the studies that, that we, that, that we refer to have been done in animals, um, whether it's laboratory animals, um, like mice or, or uh, uh, mice that have been transformed, et cetera. Um, that, that type of information is, has been very useful. Uh, to, to human beings. Um, the, they're, the, the tumors are different in animals than they are in human beings, uh, in many instances. And the types of cancers that form in, in, in animals are, are different biologically. Um, so I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that's about as good as I can do right now. Um, what, what was the other part of your question? Do I see a, a future with no cancer? Correct. From your, from your mouth to God's ears. Um, <laughs> um, the answer is it'll, it'll be a while, but uh, it, when you look at the research advances that have been made, um, in the 1990s, the federal government spent $5 billion to investigate the human genome. Uh, right. And it was predicted that it would take a decade before that, that information would be translated into usable information. And we now have mapped the whole human genome. It took less than, less than a decade. And a lot of the advances, the things that we know, uh, in terms of the, the drug development that we've had is really on the basis of having cracked the human genome and identifying the, the genes that are responsible for, um, for the development of, of malignancies. What was Not that only term? Disease, by the way, but other diseases. So that, that's that that has unlocked a, a treasure chest, if you will, of information that's made it possible for us to understand cancer at a very, very molecular level. Hmm. And on the basis of that, uh, there have been a number of drugs that have developed in the last ten to fifteen years that have been hugely responsible for making changes in, in drugs in diseases like leukemia and myeloma, and myeloma for instance, in the liquid tumors. Um, the other things that we've been able to do has been to be able to manipulate our own immune systems. Um, and so 
we have therapies called CAR T-cell therapy that really owes its life to the understanding of how cells work to, to kill cancers in our own bodies. And so we have a host of new uh, new agents called CAR T um, uh, that that are basically our T cells, um, uh, immunologic cells that are circulating in our body. They get retrained to kill tumors, and there's a huge amount of work going on in that. And then you have the whole field now of of vaccines, cancer vaccines, and there's a vaccine uh, that's being trialed right now at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, that's a breast cancer vaccine. Imagine if we could prevent breast cancers. Um, or prevent that, any cancer. Yeah, well, we, we have some vaccines that can prevent cancer. We have, believe it or not. Um, so um, from from the point of view of, of cancer prevention, we're doing a much better job than we ever have. And from the drug development point of view, that, that gives me a lot of hope that because of the basic understanding of what's going on genetically, that the advances that we're making um, uh, will will result in a world that's free of cancer. And that's really our goal. So, Are these doctor, doctor, I have this is Annie. I just have one more question. Do you see this human um, prevention trickling down to animals? Because I have a guide dog and he's like a family member and right. his cancer is just as important as my sister's cancer for me. Um, so I, I would hope that that we'll get to that point. Um, my, you know, I, I can't really speak to the veterinary world uh, as well as I can to the human world. I wish I could, but um, I hope someday that we'll be able to prevent cancers in every in every living being. Doctor, I have two Thank questions you. before um, we turn to the next caller. Thank you, Eddie. Uh, okay. My first question, Doctor, is: Are these vaccines prescribed anywhere? Yes, um, we have a vaccine that pre- uh, for the prevention of cervix cancer, and it's given every day now in the United States to boys and girls. Um, not only, um, I'm sorry, cervix cancer, but, but anal cancer, and it works also for uh, uh, prevention of head and neck cancers. Um, My final question has to do with the term that you used a few minutes ago involving the genes. I couldn't get that pronunciation of it. Gene um, something geno? The human genome. The human genome. Could you explain a little bit what that is? So, um, yeah. Uh, So, in in our cells, we have have chromosomes that have genes in them, okay? From a very basic point of view, uh, these genes that that are in the cell, the nucleus that runs the cells, um, have... The ability that they, they control our lives. They control all of our metabolic, um, uh, events in our body and what happens in terms of cell division and cell death, um, and differentiation, how cells look under the microscope. So, um, uh, and in many ways, um, the mutations, uh, changes that occur as these genes, um, gets, get, um, older, um, Mutations occur uh, or changes in the genetic structure of the gene. Uh, and in doing so, they, um, they produce in some instances cancers. Um, and so, um, knowing which genes control what diseases, and it isn't just in the world of cancer. It's also in things like, uh, um, uh, Crohn's disease or macular degeneration. 
uh, arthritis. All of the genes in our body have been mapped out, if you will, and we know basically what genes are controlling what disease processes when they mutate. Do you follow that? Yes, okay. So that, 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 that if the federal government had not made that investment in the 1990s, we wouldn't have that information. But knowing that, we, we can then figure out molecularly what's going on as these genes produce proteins and, um, and make changes, hopefully, that, that thwart these genetic mutations. Uh-huh. Ray, do we have any okay. other participants waiting uh, in the wings? We do, and we only have about six or seven minutes left, so uh, we're going to do Carrie and then uh, Sharon. Okay. Who's first? Carrie. 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 Thank, thank you. Hi. So I have two questions. The, the one is um, you mentioned there's six cancers that obesity plays a big role in, and you mentioned three of those. Can you say what all six of those are? Yeah, sure. We got esophageal cancer, gastric cancer. Um, I'm sorry. Can, can you repeat that? Uh, you're, you're, yeah. Esophageal there you cancer, go. Eso- esophageal cancer, gastric cancer, pancreatic cancer. Um, then we also have uh, endometrial cancer, which is cancer of the uterus, uh, breast cancer. Okay. Okay, that's five. <laughs> That's it. Uh, that, that's yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. And, okay. And my, my, my other question is, and I, I apologize. I was on a little late. Um, any, um, causes for colorectal cancer, known causes? Um, well, heredity is one. Uh, and there are some hereditary diseases that cause polyps to form. Um, that, that's a, that's a big one. Um, after that, um, you know, there's been some speculation that diet has a relationship. Um, that that data is not as clear. Um, mm-hmm. In other words, some people feel that if you eat a, a diet with a lot of fiber, that you can prevent colon cancer. And if you and the the there's there's some information floating around out there regarding uh, eating a diet that is low in in fiber. Leading to the development of colon cancer, but that data is really skewed, and um, I don't put a lot of stake in it. Um, so, from a hereditary point of view, that would be the main thing that I'd be that I that we can point to that um, that is a cause of colon colorectal cancer. Uh, after that, we really don't have a lot of other things that we can point to that uh, are a cause and effect. One of the things that, that you, that the, that the audience should be aware of is that there's a difference between risk and cause. Okay. And so just because we say something increases risk doesn't mean that it caused it. And let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, not to get uh, gross, but, uh, um, there, there's some data that shows that, that working at night among women can result in higher rates of breast cancer. There's other data that shows that the type of earwax that's produced in women can result in a higher risk for the development of breast cancer. Now, that risk does, the earwax, the type of earwax you have doesn't cause the breast cancer, but that association appears to be uh, somewhat relative. And so at the end of the day, we have to be very, very careful when we say what causes and what what a causes and what a risk is. 
Now, in the case of tobacco, we can show that tobacco does cause lung cancer. How can we, uh, how do we know that it's, that it's not, not just a risk and a cause? Because we can show that there's a dose effect. The more you smoke, the more a person smokes, the higher the risk for the development of, of lung cancer. We also know that 80% of the lung cancers are associated with smoking. So there's an example of how risk and cause are related, but got to be very careful when we talk about risk and, and, and cause. Okay, thank you. Okay. My question is, are, are, are health insurers paying for genetic testing that might uh, oh, assist boy. in determining, uh, and my other, and my other question is, um, yeah. um, for transportation, volunteer transportation, you mentioned that, um, how does one get that if you need, if you need transportation? So, uh, let me take the first question first. Sure. So, your question about insurers paying for, for, uh, genetic testing is a, is a huge problem in the United States. Um, it, it, some insurers will cover it. It depends on what testing you're talking about, but it's very, very, um, uh, sporadic. It, it's very different from state to state and very different from insurance company to insurance company. And it's mm-hmm. going to be more and more of a problem as we go further along because we're able to identify a lot of the gen- – but there's at least – there's over 50 genetic syndromes, by the way, uh, involved in development of various malignancies. There's over 50 of them, and, it, and it's increasing all the time. In fact, if you ask a, a genetic counselor how many genetic syndromes there are, they can't they, – they always say, I don't know, because it's increasing all the time. So it's a moving target. The insurance companies, uh, uh, would, it would be a, a lot of money for them to spend on it. Uh, and I'm not taking the position of an insurance company, but I would tell you that it is, it, it is an issue. Uh, I just spent a weekend discussing that at a, uh, at a meeting in Atlanta. In fact, exactly what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, it's going to national legislation really needs to be done. So that we can get some kind of coverage uni- yeah, universally for that. Um, so thank I you. don't think, I don't know if I answered your question, but it, it yes, really is very you. variable from, 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 from company to company and from state to state. What was the second mm-hmm. question you asked again? The, about transportation. That's a huge oh, yeah. issue for a lot of blind people. And if you use the uh, disability service, you know, sometimes you have to wait a long time for a ride and you're not feeling well and that kind of thing. So right. how, how so to locate it? The, I'm just going to talk from a cancer perspective. We have volunteers yes. in every state um, uh, in a program called Road to Recovery. And so um, uh, by contacting your cancer society locally, they can help you with that and hopefully um, arrange for a driver uh, if for a doctor's appointment or radiation therapy appointment or something like that. But we have a program in place um, uh, that hopefully could be helpful to, to, to you for, for that purpose. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Uh, right, we have we one are, last we are person. almost out of time. We have about 30 seconds, right? Uh, yeah, we have one last person. Musi, you're up next. Simple. Is the word tumor the same as cancer? Does it have to be malignant tumor? No, no, a tumor just, it means a growth. Uh, and so 
if you're going to talk about a cancer, um, you should you should either talk about it as a cancer or or refer to it as a cancer or as a cancerous growth or as a cancerous tumor. But the 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 in that in the medical jargon, the, the word tumor does not necessarily imply that it's that it's cancerous. Thank you. Thank you very much, Musi. And thank you to Dr. Baskies and Dr. Dieli Conright. Donna, we didn't hear much from you, but I know that you... Well, I would love to chime in and just say, if a person is uh, facing cancer, we don't want anyone to face cancer alone. And our 800 number, which is uh, an available 24 hours a day, every day of the year is 800-227-2345. And our live chat on cancer.org is also available. Okay, 800-227-2345, very important phone number. Very Thank important you. phone number. Thank you very much, Donna. Thank you for that, Donna. Dr. Yeah. Dr. Baskies, Dr. D'Ali Conrad, for being with us today. You provided a lot of great information for us to really pay attention to. Thank you once again. And thank you very much uh, for our participants and their participation. Raymond, thank you, and Peter as well. Next week on In Perspective, we're going to talk about taxes. Yep, it's that time of the year where we have to think about Uncle Sam. So Dennis Brady, a former IRS employee for decades, will enlighten us on the tax laws today. Everybody have a great week and go safe with God's abundant blessings and take care. 